Web 2.0. Innovation. Trend. Collaboration. Software. Metadata. Got the world turning as fast as it can? Hear how technology can help, legally speaking, with two of the top legal technology experts, authors, and lawyers, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. Welcome to the Kennedy Mile Report here on the Legal Talk Network. And welcome to episode 230 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in Ann Arbor. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. Before we get started, we'd like to thank our sponsors. First, we want to say thank you to Text Expander for sponsoring our show. Communicate smarter with Text Expander. Gather, perfect, and share your knowledge. Recall your best words instantly and repeatedly. Learn more at textexpander.com forward slash podcast. And we'd also like to thank ServeNow, a nationwide network of trusted, pre-screened process servers. Work with the most professional process servers who have experience with high-volume serves, embrace technology, and understand the litigation process. Visit servenow.com to learn more. In our last episode, we went back to the basics, I mean the very basics, and explored what we mean by the term legal technology today. We got a a great response to the episode and to the quadrant chart we discussed uh, in the episode when I posted that chart on my blog and on LinkedIn. As Tom well knows, when we do a really basic topic, I get a little antsy and want to go completely in the other direction, cover an edgy or super complicated topic for the next episode. I've actually managed to talk Tom into going about as far out there as we can possibly go these days. You'll see. Tom, what's all on our agenda for this episode? Well, Dennis, in this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, we will indeed be traveling out to the bleeding edge of technology and giving you an introduction to quantum computing, its probable practical impacts, and whether lawyers now have to be thinking about quantum computing. In our second segment, we've got an audience question, yay, about virtual home assistants in the office. And as usual, we'll finish up with our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation that you can start to use the second that this podcast is over. But first up, quantum computing and how it might impact us in the legal profession sooner than you might think, or not, or how it will and it won't simultaneously. That's a quantum mechanics joke, by the way. I'm not even sure what kind of joke I just made, Dennis. I mean, the subject has definitely made this liberal arts-educated brain explode. So for this episode, I am going to stick you with the responsibility of defining quantum computing. Are you up for this challenge? I'm totally up for the challenge, and I, I will remind you that technically I am an English major, so I do have the liberal arts background, too. Uh First, as I kind of get psyched up to to give a definition, I, I have a little short detour. So when I, every time I think of quantum computing, and it's been this way f- for a while, I kind of focus on this uh, this movie called Kiss Me Deadly, which is a film noir classic. And there's all these scenes of this guy uh, driving around with a, a briefcase full of this glowing material that you assume to be some sort of highly radioactive substance. And uh, without totally giving the movie away, he opens up that uh, suitcase at the end and like uh, uh, there's a gigantic atomic explosion. So I can't help but think of quantum computing as like this computer that has like this incredible forces of nature in it that uh, could do good or or could kind of 
blow up on us in this weird radioactive way. That said, we probably need to get a little more practical than that. I don't know if when I first brought up quantum computing, which is something we've talked about a little bit off and on over the years as a potential topic. What what do you think other than, you know, maybe it's like a, a little further out in the future than, than I do? I know. Wait a minute, Dennis. I mean, we we flipped this so that you would give the definition. My initial reaction to quantum computing is, like I said, brain exploded. Um, I, I I think after I've learned a little bit more about it, I feel um, I feel less uncomfortable with it than I was before. But um, I still think that uh, that 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 you owe us the definition before we can go further. And and that's that's what I'm here to do. Scientists are looking at sort of the the wild world of quantum mechanics and the properties of subatomic particles and saying, can they be used in ways to do computing? And I don't think we need to go in, into a lot of detail about this, but so, so there's a couple of, of ideas um, that are out there. Um, and so we're moving away from bits, the zeros and, and ones, to something that's much more complicated, which uh, they're calling qubits, uh, Q-U-B-I-T-S. And we're taking advantage of, instead of the, the on-off notion, in these particles, you can have on and off, and you can have you know different states. You can be sort of two thing, two different things at once, those sorts of things. And you start to, to build off those complications and to use those states as, as a way, as a basis for calculation. Um, and so you can do much more complex calculations faster, and they're starting to do the technologies that will allow you to kind of use those states in a coordinated way. Um, like, uh, so we're moving beyond the the on off of zeros and ones, and that's the and that's what gives the potential of it, and it's it's a difficult thing that we're they're starting to do. But uh, uh, but scientists are actually making a fair amount of progress these days. Um, how's that, Tom? I mean, I think it's okay. I still don't understand it. I I, I think and and to take my own detour. Um, I am a big fan of the author Neil Stevenson, um, who's done some great books, Cryptonomicon, and some other books that have been just really great to read. He did a recent book called The Rise and Fall of Dodo that did not have the exact, uh, uh, the, the, the same popularity that some of his other books have had, but it was along the same lines of this topic. They were, um, they were creating a quantum computer or creating some type of quantum-based technology using quantum mechanics um to to actually find a way to reproduce magic that had disappeared in the world and like not just not just sleight of hand magic but literal magic and i've got to tell you that i skipped all over completely the quantum computing and quantum mechanics explanation and they actually went into a lot of explanation about what they were doing um but and a lot of that actually has application to what we're talking about today but here's what i get from it even though i'm not scientific even though i don't understand it. I do understand the notion of instead of using regular bits with ones and zeros, we're using quantum bits. That's been shortened, like you say, to qubits. What the quantum environment allows is letting a computer investigate different paths to get to the right answer and the wrong answer all at the same time. 
and paths to the wrong answer will give a clue, will give some sort of interference that this is the wrong answer, and paths to the right answer will harmonize. They will constructively interfere, so you can see them. And I think that one of the, one, well, as you say, one of the parts about, about the quantum mechanics is that a qubit has the capability of what they call entanglement. It has the ability to be in multiple states at the same time. It can be up, down, here, or there, all at the same time. Thus my earlier joke that I really didn't understand. And I think that those of you who may have heard the thing about Schrodinger's cat, that when a cat's in the box, the cat could be dead or it could be alive, and therefore it has the possibility of existing in two different states. Until you open the box, you don't know. Um, and, 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 and I thought, well, maybe that's an explanation of what quantum mechanics is until I read a, an interview with, with a, a computer scientist named Scott Aronson who called the Schrodinger's cat analogy gesturing towards something in the vicinity of the truth. So I still don't even know what it is. And then I, so to, I guess to wrap up my definition of quantum mechanics, I, I'm going to rely on Richard Feynman. Richard Feynman is a physicist who was responsible for helping to build for the nuclear, pro, for the uh, atom bomb program in the 40s and, and was a very prominent physicist. And his statement, I think, is what sums it up for me the whole time. If you think you understand quantum mechanics, then you don't understand quantum mechanics. And that's really, I'm just going to lay that out there and say, I, I, I'm going to spend, I want us to spend the majority of the time saying, okay, let's not try to understand it. Let's try and understand what it can do for us. Yeah, and so I think that's right. I think that we we can kind of gloss over the the technicalities. Although I, I actually had a, a physicist friend who uh, was really interested in the whole world of entanglement, um, who spent a f hours trying to explain that to me. So I have a little tiny better understanding of that, and I actually think that you uh, I disagree on how you used entanglement. So to me, entanglement is when you have two particles that are uh, separated by can be massive distances able to do the same thing at the, the same time as if they they know what the other is doing or communicate in ways that uh, kind of break the laws of, of, of physics. But it's a wacky world out there. All we know is all that we care about is that it's a new way of computing that's super fast. Um, and it's the idea came up with Richard Feynman in 1959. People have been working on it a long time. Uh, a lot of progress has made, been made, say, in the last 10 years. Uh, we especially see IBM doing some things now. Um, if you want to actually experiment uh, using quantum computing, you can go to the IBM's Q site, uh, which I sort of think of as quantum computing as a service. Uh, so it's it's out there. Um, how soon it's going to happen, we don't know. I just saw a, a, a story the other day that said Parts for building quantum computers are actually really difficult to get and, and uh, presumably expensive as well. But so things are, are happening out there. It's, and I think that we'll probably see uh, even more in the next, say, two to five, two to ten years. Um, and it could be really exciting. So, so I think 
the the real question that I have time is the usual one. So what? So what will quantum computing actually allow us to do um, that the people who are involved with uh, it are so excited about? So real quick, I want to come r- real quick back to to IBM's project, the the Q system, because they actually unveiled. You know, in our last episode, we talked about some of the things that interested us most at the Consumer Electronics Show. Neither of us at the time mentioned uh, the debut of the Q system. One at CES, which IBM described as the world's first fully integrated universal quantum computing system designed for scientific and commercial use. Notice that it said designed. It didn't say ready. Um, and I think the general thought about this is, is that uh, they're not looking at this computer that can start to solve problems, but as a computer that allows scientists and other companies to test and further develop what you can do with a quantum computer in the first place, um, which I think the, the what I've read about it generally says it's not an incredible breakthrough, but it is a solid productive step towards commercial realization of quantum computing. So I think that, um, I, I don't know that two to five years is accurate, but most of what I say says say that, that, that full-scale use of quantum computing is still a pr- fairly long ways off for folks like us. And so to get to that, to get to that, what, what I see that quantum computing will allow us to do is I view that the main benefit of quantum computing is to do things faster than traditional computing could do. So the types of things that lawyers need to do that, what are the types of things that they need to do faster? So uh, machine learning is one thing that quantum computing can do. Uh, So to uh, improve machine learning in the e-discovery or the document review context. Um, The, um, certainly I think legal research, I think will be an area that could be improved by that. It will be able to take information from everywhere and analyze it and provide answers in a much shorter period of time. Um, it will allow, I think, due diligence to be performed better in intellectual property or things like that. Those are some of the areas that I think are the most uh, are, are the most interesting. I will say one of the one of the things that's not necessarily related to the law, but I think that's going to be interesting about quantum computing is the idea that um, quantum computing can crack or will be able to crack most types of encryption, which at first glance may seem to be not a very good thing. Um, But when you also consider the fact that quantum computing will also enable an even stronger type of encryption, they call it quantum key distribution, um, very highly secure encryption. I, I feel a lot more confident that uh, that even though <laughs> quantum computing may break all the encryption that we currently have, at least there's an answer for it. So those are the types of things that I see. There are a couple more that maybe we want to talk about, but those are the, 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 the some of the major things that at least excite me about what quantum computing can do. Dennis? Right. So I think it's the speed that Complex math and then and, and modeling. So uh, the so obviously people work on quantum computing aren't don't really have the the practice of law at the the forefront of of their thinking. So uh, the general idea of quantum computing was that it's going to be the way you could model and figure out what was happening at the in the quantum mechanics world. It would give you the power and the, the speed to, to do that. Uh, so so we keep that in mind, and then we say with the complex math that brings us potentially into as Tom. Uh, 
said, into a new area of, of uh, a new era of cryptography, uh, both being able to potentially break current models and to create new ones. Um, so it's important to understand what's going on there as, as we do more, more and more things that are encrypted. Um, and then the, this notion of speed as, um, I, I just think of it as kind of executing in, in multiple paths. So database queries, speed improvement, uh, search improvement in general, um, is is another thing, and then I and then as I said, I think these the models. So you might think, well, the the weather the weather models and predictions might get better, um, and then uh, as Tom also said, that uh, with quantum computing, we're going to be able to do with more machine learning, uh, more in the AI world of and handle large amounts of data better and then potentially get better results with small uh, uh, amounts of data in, in AI. But it's all sort of, uh, we're sort of guessing what's out there. It's uh, when you think of a, a dramatic increase of speed and, and power, then it's, uh, you just have to, to think, you say, okay, these seems like the, the likely things, but we don't know exactly what those will be because uh, other advances in technology that were significant, like this could be, um, really had some unexpected uh, uh, impact. You know, you, th you think of the lasers and once we got to the blue laser era, all sorts of things became became possible. So with quantum computing, there could be a lot of things that are, are unexpected. And I don't know, to me, Tom, there sort of is this notion of quantum computing as a service uh, where I don't have to worry about carrying around that that sort of lead briefcase in the trunk of my car uh, with all sorts of radioactive material in it, but I can just uh, access a quantum uh, computer or think of it as a quantum server over the internet and actually get the processing and the work done for me. I think that's sort of probably the experience a lot of us would um, have uh, with quantum computers, not that we would kind of have one sitting on our desk. Well, and, and the IBM service really is quantum computing as a service because they're essentially renting the service from from IBM to do it and and not only the the lead briefcase but I, I don't think you can make it in a briefcase Dennis I think it's still pr a pretty big a pretty big device and because because of the energy required, um, the 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 you have to have uh, a very cold environment, which I believe I read somewhere somewhere in the range of minus four hundred and fifty seven degrees Fahrenheit. So certainly you're not going to carry that around with you. Um, that was uh, that was one of the main issues in the book that I read, where they had to find a place where it could uh, be sufficiently cold uh, to maintain the equipment appropriately. So I think there's an issue there. The the other application that I find very fascinating, but I still, again, don't understand because I don't under I can I, I can understand how quantum computing could enable things to happen much faster because because the if a traditional computer takes 100 iterations to search 100 different numbers, a quantum computer only needs 10 iterations to search those to, to search those 100 numbers so it can do it that much faster I get that that makes sense to me what I what I find fascinating but I still don't understand is is that they're saying that that quantum computing will also be able to find new chemical catalysts um, be able to um, develop new battery materials or determine new materials that can help batteries um, 
have more capacity, last longer, you know, thinking more, not just of the batteries that you put into your remote control, but the batteries that you put into your car. And the, the, the cars could even go for much longer when you do that. And the fact that it would be quantum computing that would be determining this and figuring that out is very interesting to me. But again, this is where the limits of my understanding really sort of uh, sort of go. Now, so I guess the, the real question here, Dennis, is, is that we've kind of talked about what, uh, what lawyers might do with this. Um, is this part of the whole lawyer's duty of technical competence? I mean, do we do we feel like this is something lawyers need to need to know about to be technologically competent? I would say probably not, right? Well, I think you we want to be aware of the existence, and because of the the potential issue on encryption, we want to kind of monitor events. I mean, I, I think you said you, you put it well when you said that here are the things you could we could do that in you know. Know, battery technology, chemicals, physics, all these other things. So, believe me, if you're in quantum computing, you know law is not on on your radar at all. It's also not, as you were saying, it's not like you, something you do in your garage. You're not going to solder up, you know, some quantum gates and run out to your, you know, the particle accelerator you have in your in your garage. So. Um, you're going to use this. It could be that you end up using quantum computing in a way that you're, you think you're just using a service, that this is at the background. So I think that for the most part, I don't – so security encryption, we want to be aware of what's going on there. And especially if the bad guys get a hold of this and start breaking all sorts of encryption, then we want to know what kind of steps that we need to take. I think if you're a patent lawyer in this field, then obviously it's something you need to, to know a lot about. But there's not, there may be a few of them uh, listening to this podcast, um, maybe more than a few, but that's, that's uh, going to be a limited subset. The other thing that I think is going to become really interesting, and it's just, uh, this is is starting now, which is to say there are algorithms out there, and we're seeing this in AI and machine learning, where I think lawyers to, especially uh, the litigators and trial lawyers, are going to have to explain this stuff. And there's a great term I saw the, uh, someone use the other day. We need to learn how to uh, interrogate algorithms. So we need to understand what algorithms are being used to make predictions and to draw conclusions, especially from AI. And then we need to know how to interrogate those. So I think you're going to see the use of more things um, in AI are going to be facilitated through quantum computing. And that's the part where that lawyers might need to be involved, you know. So you might have something where a decision is made by an AI, and you're going to have to understand sort of what's happening, so that you, if you think it was an unfair decision, you know how how do you address that? So those are sort of the things that that I see. Time, did you have? Uh, I don't know if there are things in the e-discovery world as well, because once you, you know, once somebody starts doing something using quantum computing, that may uh, lead to some kind of electronic evidence of some sort. No, I, the only thing I would say, and I, I, I will take the sort of opposing position to this, which is if we take at face value that the duty of technology competence requires you to understand the technology that you use in service of your clients, then I would say 
quantum computing is not one of those things because right now there's no application. There's nothing that we could be using for to, to do that. So I, I think that from, from a purely definitional standpoint, um, there's not a requirement that we know about it. Um, I think that in, in terms of interrogating algorithms, again, this is where some of my knowledge um, starts to, 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 to get a little bit lean, but I would argue that it is easier to understand an, an AI algorithm using traditional computing than it will be to explain an algorithm based on you know a, a quantum system that has that has developed or is using that now there may be some similarities but I think that uh, being able to get to that point we're not there yet and I'm hoping that between now and then we find a way to explain it I hope we find a way to understand it so that people can talk about it when we get there but I still think we're a ways off from getting there. What I'm what I'm happy that Dennis, you and I are being able to do is is that I think that it's important that lawyers keep this sort of thing on their radar so that they know that it's out there. They know that something might be happening so that it's not going to hit them in the head and go, where was I and why didn't I know about any of this? And so I think that's one of the great values here. And, um, and, and so I'm glad that we do this on the podcast. I just think that we're still a little ways off, um, at least for practical application where lawyers are going to have to understand a lot about it. Yeah, I would say with the the uh, probably obvious exception, if if you're you have a client who's a quantum computing company, then your obligation to understand the technology is is going to go up significantly compared to other people. Um, I also don't see quantum computing, frankly, as a buzzword that's going to get thrown around in, in legal tech. Um, I personally would focus on you know blockchain and AI and other of those buzzwords before quantum uh, computing. And, and I agree with you, Tom. This is really, we do this episode, this is sort of like one of our uh, regular occasional series of introducing sort of big new technologies just to get people thinking about them. And, and that's, that's a fun thing that we like to do with the podcast. And with that, let's take a break for a message from our sponsors. Text Expander is a productivity multiplier. Lawyers love Text Expander because with a short abbreviation or search while typing, Text Expander can produce cover emails for invoices or signing instructions, insert templates for consistent meeting notes, perform accurate date math on the fly, and instantly present things you retype all the time. Text Expander runs on Macs, iPhones, iPads, and Windows and works in any application. Visit textexpander.com slash podcast for 20% off your first year. Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screen process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the industry. Connecting your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high-volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit www.servenow.com. And now let's get back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. We so want to feature audience questions from our voicemail line in this segment, and we have one for this episode, as Tom said earlier so eloquently. Yay! It's from Mike, an attorney in South Carolina. It's about one of Tom's favorite topics, virtual assistants. 
Here's Mike's question. Good morning. I really enjoy the podcast. This is Mike. I'm an attorney in Columbia, South Carolina. I was wondering where you guys fell on whether it is appropriate to have uh, smart assistants like Echo or Echo Dot or any of the Google smart assistants in your office at work. I'm a little bit leery of having them because I'm a little bit leery about having something that's listening to me all the time and was wondering what y'all thought about that. Tom, do you want to give your answer? And I'll see if I agree. Sure. So I have a couple of responses to this, and I think different options. I think, um, Mike, you're absolutely right to be wary of smart assistants being able to hear everything you say. When we look at new technologies as lawyers, part of that duty of technology competence that we talk about is to evaluate the risk of using them and understand what those risks are, weigh them against the benefits of the technology, and and and, and act accordingly. And the biggest potential risk, I think, and we've talked about this a couple of times on the podcast, of using smart assistants is that violation of lawyer-client confidentiality, or I say potential violation of lawyer-client confidentiality. I think it's important to understand what these smart assistants do, or at least say they do anyway, and, and, and I take them at their word when they say this. I'm going to speak for both Google and Amazon here. You know, Both say that these devices, the Echo, the Google Home, are always on listening, but one, they're only listening for the wake word, whether it's the A word for Echo. I'm gonna, I don't want to set anybody's Echo off, so I'm not going to say everything, or Hey G for Google devices. So if they're recording anything... It's a repeated loop of the past few seconds, looking to see whether that wake word, those words, were said. Then what they tell us is they delete that loop and start all over again. So they're not recording information in long bits. They're waiting just to hear that word. So theoretically, your Echo or your Google Home is not going to record anything until you say the wake word. And once you say that, then yes, everything you say after that wake word is going to be recorded. And you should assume that it's going to be kept if not for not in, not forever, at least for a very long time. So, uh, you know, Google doesn't promise, and Amazon doesn't promise that they're going to get rid of that information anytime soon. So, obviously, when you know it's listening to you, and when you know it's trying to take down instructions, you don't want to have somebody in the back spouting off confidential information. But my opinion is, is that in all other times, I think you're safe to have otherwise privileged conversations because I think if we take them at their word, your words are not being recorded. Whether, Rather, if they are being recorded, it's only a few seconds and then they're immediately being recorded over. However, if that still doesn't make you feel better, if you can't take Google or Amazon at your word, the good news is, is that all of these devices have the ability for you to turn off the microphone when you don't want it to hear you talking. So if a client comes into your office, you can turn off the microphone to have your confidential conversation, then turn it back on when you're by yourself or when you want to use the assistant to get some information, have it be useful to you. The best part about these is that they are functional in that way. And you can, with a simple flick of the switch, you can do that anytime you want. And so my advice is to invest in one of them. Try it out. See for yourself how it works. Some of them are really dirt cheap. You mentioned you know, the Echo Dot. Some of those are really not very expensive at all. So it's definitely worth the investment to, to give it a try and see for yourself. Dennis, how about you? 
Yeah, I'm just uh, I, I I agree with you, and and I think that this is one of these things where people look at technology sort of in isolation, and I always say compared to what? I mean, look at what you're already doing. So, in my whole legal career, I can't even it's incomprehensible to me like how much confidential information I've heard lawyers talking about in restaurants and airports. I mean, it's it's without even trying. So, so, you know, it's like the chance that your, your device might pick up something is, uh, you know, compared to look at the rest of your behaviors, look at, you know, speaker phones, the stuff you hear uh, on that all the time, uh, missent emails, all sorts of things. So I think that you want to be sort of realistic about the concern. I don't think you want to go, I think Tom's right. You can, you can turn things off. You can do other things. You can, you know, it's, it's sort of awareness. If you say, I'm having this really sensitive conversation, um, I will step away f- from that device if, if I'm really that concerned about it. Um, I get a picture of, uh, I used to, uh, one of my uh, law partners had a secretary, and when she made personal calls that got to be really personal, she would like crawl under her desk and was was talking on the phone, like in, in, in whispers, where we were all just kind of looking at her like, what in the world is going on? But also, we were all trying to listen in at the same time, because we knew it had to be super sensitive. So I don't think you have to hide under your desk from these devices. But but I think you could say, uh, if I'm concerned about it, I can take precautions. I, I think you do want to focus and say, okay, what are the benefits um, that, you know, so what am I trading off? So there's, there's some cool things happening with timekeeping, um, you know, other things that you can do with uh, with these devices, and they can certainly look up things for you and and be an entertainment system, you, you know, background music, that sort of thing. So um, just take reasonable steps. I don't really see it as a big concern. I would I would use use one at work in the in the in the right setting. Probably not the greatest thing if you're in an open office plan, but uh, there's other reasons that uh, that uh, you wouldn't use it in an open office plan as well. So now it's time for our parting shots at one tip website or observation. You can use a second as podcast ends. Tom, take it away. So I will um, confess that I haven't used this yet, but I'm interested in using it. And it's a tool called History Search. And History Search is uh, it really wants to be um, the, the memory for your web searches. And what History Search does is, is that it actually indexes the text on web pages that you visit. It indexes them. It makes them fully text searchable. Um, it, it integrates with Google so that when you're on the, the, the Google search page, it will come up with whatever things you found on pages. So theoretically, you can have it index the things that you want it to so that you can always have in a searchable format a lot of the pages that you have searched before and you want to go back to again. You can also set things as favorites, so it can be a bookmarking search service as well. Um, it'll search sort search results by list or domain. Um, you can blacklist sites so that they don't appear in your search results. You can delete search results from your from from your things anytime you want to. Um, you can um, download your data to a CSV file and keep it in an Excel spreadsheet if you want to keep it. Um, I'm sort of intrigued by this as a as a as a way to kind of keep my memory of of the the, the web pages that I've searched before. Uh, it's free for three thousand pages of web activity. Um, it'll cost you about fifty bucks a year for thirty thousand pages. 
wages. And then, uh, what is that? About 60 bucks a year, uh, for, um, or, or maybe 75 bucks a year for unlimited pages. Um, so it's intriguing. I think I may give the free one a shot to see what it does. Um, see how well that keeps things together so that it makes things easier to search. It's called historysearch.com. You know, Tom, while you're describing that, I would just have this picture of you, like, you know, being in one of those Frankenstein movies where they, they put those metal things on your head with the wires out of them and pull this big power switch. And it's like uh, everything in your brain is being downloaded over to Google. But uh, um, that's the image. That's the image that's, you got. That's the image okay. I have. Right. But and I think you're more comfortable with that than than I am. Uh, so my parting shot is a follow up from our last podcast. I have uh, put up the uh, legal technology definition quadrant chart that I put together, version one point zero, uh, up on my blog. There's also a discussion of it on on LinkedIn. Um, you can use a so it's uh, to me the easiest thing is to. Yeah, either go to my blog and you'll find it. It's called Legal Technology Definition Quadrant Chart 1.0. You can also do a, a, a Google search on that. It's probably the easiest way to do that. And we'll put the URL in the, the show notes as well. The other thing uh, Tom and I have been able to do for, for listeners to the show is that we have a 20% discount code until March 31st, 2019 um, for our book, the, uh, the Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration tools and technologies you just go to the aba online store use the discount code when you go to the checkout of uh tech tool all caps uh 19 so t-e-c-h-t-o-o-l 19 all caps on tech tool and you'll get a 20 percent discount uh, on the book and so that wraps it up for this edition of the kennedy mile report Thanks for joining us on the podcast. You can find show notes for this episode at tkmreport.com. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or on the Legal Talk Network site, where you can find archives of all of our previous podcasts. Or suggest a topic at our new document uh, that's at bit.ly forward slash 2 capital Q capital N W H capital Z lowercase u. If you'd like to get in touch with us, reach out to us on LinkedIn, or as you can tell from this episode, please leave us a voicemail at 720-441-6820. So until the next podcast, I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy, and you've been listening to the Kennedy Mile Report, a podcast on legal technology with an internet focus. If you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts, and we'll see you next time for another episode of the Kennedy Mile Report on the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for listening to the Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, Smart Ways to Work Together, from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, only on the Legal Talk Network. <laughs>